Hey, good morning, everybody. How are you doing today? Good to have you here. Thanks for being a part of the journey on, uh, on this Sunday. Um, hey, before I get into the message, let me uh, bring you up to date with our playground, all right? Uh, we've been talking about this actually for four years, but uh, really began to make this happen back in the fall. And I want to let you know where we are, give you an update, and uh, we're still moving towards the late part of spring for this playground to be installed. We're not going to give you dates because we give you a date and it's later. You guys get mad at us, right? So we're not going to do that, uh, but it's coming, right? It, it is coming. Uh, the cost of this playground is $225,000. Playgrounds are crazy expensive, but we're trying to raise $120,000 over the next two years. And so... We are inviting you to be a part of this. Let me tell you the first piece here. Pledges are due next week, right? March the 3rd. And so you still have another week to do this. But there's a couple of ways that you can help us make this happen. Uh, out in the lobby, there's a card, and uh, there's actually a big QR code out there, too. But we're asking for a couple of things from you. We're asking for you to pray about this. Uh, we truly believe this is a way that we can connect with a part of our community that, that churches leave out. And we've talked about it. I'm not going to spend any time on that. Uh, in fact, if you're brand new and you're wondering why an accessible playground, go to our website. we got a tab there. You can read more about this playground. But we, we believe this is a place that um, more and more people can take next steps towards Jesus. But the other piece to this is we're inviting you to be a part of this generosity campaign. And so we're inviting you to say, hey, this is what I, I, we're willing to do. You know, I'll do this a month for the next two years, or I'll just do a one-time deal for this. Uh, as of last Sunday, which is just kind of the beginning point, we had 11 pledges worth $15,000. And, and today we know we get more, and then next week we'll, we'll have a big group of that. But we're asking you to jump in and to do that. You can actually take a photo of the QR code in front of you, and, uh, and there's a link that will pop up that asks for you to pledge there too. So make sure you're doing that. If you've got any questions about this, hit us up, office at thejourneynova.org, and we will answer those questions for you. But we're looking forward to making that, that happen, all right? All right, I want you to do me a favor. I want you to rewind. I want you to go back in time to the year 2023. <laughs> you guys remember year 2023? Specifically, I want you to go back to Christmas. Did you know it's been 62 days since Christmas? I don't know about you, it feels like eons have passed since Christmas, right? By the way, you got 303 days until Christmas 2024, so go ahead and start planning for that. Yep, might as well start putting that money away for those presents. But if you think back to Christmas 2023, there, there's certain things that probably pop up in your mind, right? There, there's shopping. You, you did some shopping. And maybe there were the parties that you went to and you were part of. And, and then there, there were the decorations that you saw as you were kind of traveling around the area. Maybe your own decorations you remember. And some of you, you still have Christmas trees up in your house right now, right? It's okay. We, we're, we're glad that you're here at the journey. But, um, but Christmas just seems like so long ago, and there's all these pieces to it. How many of you remember the presents you got? And then now, as you're thinking about those presents, how many of them are lost, broken, uh, torn, um, forgotten? Well, let's just be honest, they don't fit anymore, right? <laughs> like, we, we think back to, to Christmas, and, and maybe the only remembrance we have of Christmas is the credit card bill we get every single month. It's like, oh yeah, I remember, there you go over there, I remember, I remember Christmas. But here's the deal. When you think about Christmas, it is this holiday that comes with all of this excitement, all of this fanfare, and yet we're 62 days from Christmas, and it's pretty much forgotten. 
And I want to tell you today that I think it's something we should remember every day we live. As we continue our series called Beginnings. Now, if you haven't been here, let me give you a quick recap on this series. When you look at Scripture, and there are probably more than this, but we, we have six beginnings that we see. And, and each one of these beginnings, they kind of play on, on the beginning before it. And so this really, as we go through the series, we're walking through the Bible. We're doing a really quick walk through the Bible. And as we do, we're seeing the story of God, the story of Jesus, and we get to see how, how we fit in, into the story our, ourselves. And so the first week we talked about creation and how the ultimate creation was us. It was humanity, and, and we were created to be in a relationship with God. And then the next week we, we talked about chaos, and we said, hey, there's, there's like, Joel used the word last week, this perfect harmony, right? Shalom, and, and it was perfect. But, but what happens? Adam and Eve, they're deceived by that serpent, and so they give in, and, and they sin, and they create chaos for the world. And then last week, Joel talked about community. That the guy jumps in, comes to this guy named Abraham, and says, hey, Abraham, through your people, I'm going to send someone that's going to bring this the shalom is going to bring this perfect harmony back to humanity. Which leads us to where we are today, and we're going to talk about Christ. We're going to talk about Christ, and we're going to start out by looking at the Christmas story in February. Here we go. Luke chapter 2, starting with verse 1. At that time, the Roman Emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. This was the first census taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. All returned to their own ancestral towns to register for this census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. He took with him Mary, to whom he was engaged, who is now expecting a child. Like we read these words here in Luke chapter 2, and we think, like, what a sweet, beautiful birth story. This was probably a great time to be alive, probably a much simpler time to live. And the reality is it was far from it. There's a lot going on when Jesus is born. Let me just kind of share with you a, a couple of these things. First, Jesus is born into political chaos. As we look at the beginning here of Luke, we find that the Roman Empire is, is, is at its, the power that, um, that exists for the known world at that time. In uh, 27 BCE, Caesar Augustus is chosen to be the emperor of the Roman Empire, really to consolidate all of this power underneath one person. And so he's made the Roman emperor. You know much about him? You know that this led to 200 years of, of peace and, and justice and, and freedom for the Romans, right? It was known as the, the Pax Romana. And, and this was great if you were Roman. If you weren't Roman... This wasn't such a great time to be alive. But this is why the Romans love Augustus. In fact, they end up calling him the great Savior. And so here is Augustus who was born, at, or here's Jesus who was born into this, this Roman Empire. But there's another political layer to this. You've got the Israelite political system that's in place. About 36 years before Augustus, Israel is conquered by what was then known as the Roman Republic. And... Um, and they worked out a deal where they became this client kingdom where Israel could still kind of rule itself, but, um, but they were going to do so under the, the power of the Roman Empire. They had to be subordinate to Rome. They could still have a king, but they still had to be subordinate to Roman rule. 
In 37 BCE, a guy named Herod the Great is appointed by the Roman Senate to, to be this king. And by the way, when the Roman Senate put him in this position, they called him the king of the Jews. Sort of foreshadowing to the life of Jesus there, right? Now, why was he known as Herod the Great? He was known as Herod the Great because he was kind of like Bob the Builder. He was a builder, right? Herod the Builder. He built so many things, beautiful, beautiful palaces and coliseums in Israel because he wanted to be just like Rome. And so uh, Israel at that point was kind of like D.C. pre-COVID. When you look around, there's just cranes everywhere. I mean, that's very much what Israel was like at that time. Because Herod was always building, and this was good for Rome. This was good for Herod. This was good for rulers. This was good for the wealthy, and and a little bit for the Israelites. It did bring some, some jobs there. But, uh, but it was also mostly for the rulers at that time. Well, Herod may have sounded great, but he was actually hated by the Jewish people. Part of it was that he was not fully Jewish. His dad's family had, um, had uh, converted to Judaism uh, before Herod. His mom came out of an Arab background. And so because he wasn't fully Jewish, uh, they hated him. They hated him as their king. Uh, they also hated him because he worked so closely with Rome. They saw him as a traitor. They were like, you're doing this stuff for Rome. This is just for you. This is not for us. They saw him as a traitor. Uh, he was also unpredictable. Uh, psychologists have gone back and looked at Herod and what we find in Scripture and, and extra-biblical uh, history on Herod, and they have said he was a paranoid schizophrenic because of the way he acted, things that he did, but, but most importantly, it's because he had family members and close confidants executed because he was afraid they were coming after his, his throne. And so as you can imagine, you kind of put all of this together, and, and Herod was not liked by the Jewish people, and here's Jesus who's born into this, this political system there in, in Israel. But there's actually another layer to this, and it's the Jewish religious system. Now for the Jewish people, they didn't separate politics and religion. It was the same thing. They were intertwined. It was called a theocracy, and and God was supposed to be in charge of all of this, and, and, and the religious leaders were kind of this political religious group that tried to connect everybody to God. Now, if you know much about those religious leaders, they were actually terrible at this because it wasn't about God. It really was uh, about them. But there's different groups that, that you have that are, that are playing a role in this. You've got the zealots. Zealots were freedom fighters. They were terrorists. They were trying to get rid of the Roman occupation. So they were very, very violent. And they were trying to get people to come in and to help them so they could get rid of of Rome. You had the Essenes. They were a strange group. They were um, a monastic, apocalyptic, mystic group. And they were trying to get people to follow them too, but they were trying to get them to follow them into the the mountains and these communes that they had put together. And, And when they looked at Rome, they didn't like Rome either. They didn't want to be connected to Rome, but they didn't like the religious leaders at the time. And so they were trying to pull people in. You had the Sadducees. They were wealthy aristocrats uh, put into power mostly for political reasons. They were not very religious. Uh, They weren't a huge fan of Rome, but they worked with Rome because they knew that that Rome padded their their pockets. They knew they got money and power from Rome because of their role. And so you've got this group, again, that's trying to function in this kind of strange political system. And then lastly, you have the Pharisees. Probably the group we're most familiar with. Now, middle-class religious leaders that were very religious, trying to get people to follow the rules and, and the laws. 
Um, they didn't like Roman occupation, but didn't really want to fight it. Um, and, and so they've got this position here, too, in this political religious system. Like Jesus is born into this. This is the political chaos that was happening at the time of Jesus. But Jesus was also born into an economic crisis. We go back to Luke 2, and we see this name Quirinius. Quirinius was a, a Roman aristocrat that was put to, in place to be a governor over the Syrian region, which would have included Bethlehem. There's definitely some debate on the census and timing and who ordered it and what was it for. What we do know is that there was a census, but the census wasn't really for the purposes we would normally think of. It wasn't to count the population. Now, that helped, but the main reason you would do a census was you wanted to know how much to tax the people, right? We can figure out how many people live in the Roman Empire, how many people live in Israel, and then from that, we can begin to tax them appropriately. So this, this census was all about taxation. Now, in those days, only about 3% of the people in the Roman Empire were wealthy. And so what would the census do? Again, this would pad their pockets. This would help them financially and who they were. It was going to help the rulers and, and the wealthy people. 97% of the people who lived under the Roman Empire, there was no middle class back then, by the way, 97% lived in some degree of poverty. The unemployment rate at that time was thought to be around 70%. Jesus is born into this economic crisis. But then Jesus is born into a messy love story. We talked about this a little bit over Christmas. We've got Mary and Joseph, and uh, they probably grew up together. Uh, in those days, you were born, raised, worked, and died in the same community, the same hometown. Their hometown was small. And so they probably knew each other. Their families probably knew each other. At some point, there may have been some connection between uh, Mary and Joseph. And, and the, the parents jump in and like, hey, we're going we're gonna to arrange this marriage. Some of us would love to do that for our kids, right? We're like, yep, this is good. Some of you may have even grown up in communities like that in the, the countries you grew up in. But, but they arranged this, this marriage between these, these two, um, two lovebirds, we'll, we'll say. But like any love story, any romance novel, any romantic movie, um, there's some things that are happening here, right? Mary's pregnant, but Joseph's not the dad. And oh, by the way, no human's the dad, right? Mary's going around, it's like, hey, this kid is, is God's. And so there's that sort of tension in that relationship. And, and so Joseph says, hey, I, I'm going to leave. I'm done with this. I, I'm moving on. I'm going to start over. You start over. And then this angel shows up in his life. He's like, hey, no, don't, don't do that. This is God's plan. God wants you to marry Mary. And, and so as we look in Luke, we find they're together. They're not married yet. They're still engaged. And they're heading to Bethlehem for this census. Can you imagine the tension in that relationship? Like, this is the best country love song you could ever write, right? You got this hometown love story between these two people, and it's like a, a country love song. And Jesus, Jesus is born into this. Look at verse 6 of Luke 2. And while they were there, the time came for a baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. We, we read this part of Luke chapter 2, and I don't know about you, it's kind of like, hey, there's a sweet story 
like this cuddly little baby, cute little couple, the old little town of, of Bethlehem. And when we read it that way, I think we're missing what's actually happening here. Political chaos, economic crisis, this uh, messy love story. But there's also one more thing that's happening at the birth of Jesus. Jesus was born into a war. Now you're sitting there and you're thinking, well, I just saw those verses and I know the, the story of Christmas and I don't see anything about war in there, right? I don't see anything about any kind of battles. What, is, what does this have to do with the birth of Jesus? We find the war story in a writing called Revelation, which is the last book of the Bible. John is a disciple of Jesus's, and if you know his story, uh, basically John and Jesus are best friends, right? And, and here's John in 95 AD. He is, uh, has been imprisoned. He is on the island of Patmos, which is kind of like a, a penal colony at the time on the west coast of, of Turkey. And a, as he's there, he gets this vision from God, and he begins to write it down. Now, if you know Revelation, you know that John is writing it to these seven churches in what is known as Asia Minor. And uh, they're all facing the same things. They're facing persecution from the empire. They are facing theological issues that they have disagreements about about within the churches. And there's also this, this spiritual warfare that is taking place. And so John writes into this, and it's interesting what he writes in Revelation 12 because... What he does is he talks about the birth of Jesus. Look at verse 1. Then I witnessed in heaven an event of great significance. I saw a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon beneath her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant, and she cried out because of her labor pains and the agony of giving birth. What John is talking about here, he's talking about Mary giving birth to Jesus. And we go back to Luke chapter 2, and we read that, and we're like, oh, you know, this is the birth of the Son of God. It was simple. It was easy. God made it painless for Mary. And, and what is John saying here? John, John's like, nope. Like, this birth was like any other birth that a woman could experience. Look at verse 3. Then I witnessed in heaven another significant event. I saw a large red dragon with seven heads and ten horns with seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept away one third of the stars in the sky, and he threw them to the earth. He stood in front of the woman as she was about to give birth, ready to devour her baby as soon as it was born. She gave birth to a son who was to rule all nations with an iron rod, and her child was snatched away from the dragon and was called up to God and to his throne. Every time I read this passage right here, I think um, Lord of the Rings, Game of Thrones, right? I mean, it's kind of what you, you get as you read this, but... But here's this deal. You and I have created this Christmas dream. Sleepy little town of, of Bethlehem. Maybe a little snow falling on the ground. Bean Crosby Christmas songs in the background, right? This perfect little couple, they're lovey-dovey, this cute little baby. I mean, the song says, no crying he makes, so this baby doesn't cry. I mean, we've kind of, we've kind of created... This, this dream of what Christmas, what the birth of Jesus was like. But in the midst of our clean, sanitized version of the Christmas story, there's a reality. Political chaos, economic crisis, this messy love story, and there's also this war. Here in Revelation, John introduces us to a new character. 
uh, this, this dragon. And you're thinking to yourself, wow, this story just got really, really weird. And that would in some ways be true, but this dragon is representative of Satan. And what is it Satan's doing? What is it Satan's waiting for? Satan is waiting for Jesus to be born, right? And why is Satan waiting for this Jesus to be born? Because Satan wants to get rid of Jesus. Satan wants to take Jesus out. Now, now why would Satan want to do that? Satan wants to do that because he knows the importance of Jesus to humanity. And so as John is writing this passage right here, he's letting us know there, there's something that's much bigger that's happening here than what we read and what we've kind of sanitized in Luke chapter 2, that there's this war that was taking place. John even says this in verse 7. Then there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragons and his angels. And the dragon lost the battle, and he and his angels were forced out of heaven. This great dragon, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, the one deceiving the whole world, was thrown down to the earth with all his angels. Here is John who's saying there is this cosmic battle that has taken place here at the birth of Jesus. We've got good versus evil. We've got God versus Satan. To put it away, you probably understand we got the cowboys versus the commanders, right? <laughs> like there is this battle that is happening here. But, but I want you to notice something. If we go back to verse 9, we notice the dragon's called something else. John goes back to Genesis chapter 3 and says this, the ancient serpent, the one deceiving the whole world. What we are reading right here in Revelation chapter 12 connects back to what we've been talking about over the past three weeks. That God creates humanity and says, hey, I want a relationship with you. But then this chaos comes, and why does the chaos come? Because of the ancient serpent, right? Deceives the whole world, deceives Adam and Eve. And, and they decide to go against the will of God, and they end up sinning. But then God says, hey, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to change this. I'm going to redeem humanity through this, this person, through, through my son, through, through Jesus. And so God makes this covenant, this, this bond with, with Abraham and says, hey, I'm going to bring this person through, through your people. Which brings us to where we are with Jesus, that someone is Jesus. But look at what happens in verse 17. And the dragon was angry at the woman and declared war against the rest of her children, all who keep God's commandments and maintain their testimony for Jesus. The good news is that dragon never got a hold of Jesus. The bad news is that dragon is after you and me. And Satan is trying to grab you and me. So that means this battle, this war, it rages it rages to this day. And you're sitting there thinking, that's not the Christmas story I like, right? And that's not the Christmas story that, that I, I know. We're talking about a dragon trying to devour Jesus, right? Thinking, what kind of wacky book is this? And what kind of wacky church even and talks about something like this? Well, let's not get hung up on the dragon imagery. Let's focus on what this means for you and for me through the birth of Jesus. And so let me share a few thoughts from what we've been looking at this morning. First thing I would say is that God is willing to do whatever it takes to repair that relationship with him. In World War II, the Nazis had pretty much taken over most of Europe and seemed unstoppable. And the allies got together and said, we've got to do something. So they decided, we'll, uh, we're going we're gonna to take this beachhead in Normandy. And, and if we do this, we feel like we can push them back and we can maybe win this war. 
On June 6, 1944, Operation Overlord, also known as Operation Neptune, went to full effect, and 156,000 troops were sent to Normandy. That day, 4,414 Allied troops died in that battle. 2,499 of those being United States soldiers. But if you know your history, you know that was the day the Allies took over that beach. And historians say it's not only the moment that, that the Allies took over the beach, it's the moment that they won that war. Why do I bring that up? Allied forces did everything they could to beat the Nazis. And they did this knowing that it would come at great cost. They knew that people would lose their lives, but there was something that they believed in so much. They were going to do whatever it took to win the war. When I look at God, God did whatever it took to repair our relationship with him. Like we were created to be in relationship with God, even though we mess up, even though we're not perfect. God still says, hey, I want this relationship with you, and I will do whatever it takes to show you that. And so Jesus is born into the world because of that love that God has for us, because God desires that relationship with him. But God also does something else. God redeems us from our chaos through Jesus. I think you kind of get this idea. This is not a, a wonderful Christmas Hallmark movie that we are talking about when it comes to the birth of Jesus. Jesus is born into this political, economic, relational, spiritual chaos. But you know what? That chaos still exists today, right? We look at our, our families. We can look in our communities. We can look in our, our cities, our states, our, our nation, our world. And what do we see? We see chaos everywhere. But you know what? You and I also create chaos ourselves by the decisions that we make in our life, um, the hurts that we have caused, the sins that we have committed. Like we bring chaos into our own world, and yet what does God do? God redeems us, redeems that chaos through Christ. I think it's why we love John 3, 16 and 17. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that Everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. That in our chaos, God sent Jesus to give us grace, to extend mercy, to show us there's hope, to let us know what unconditional love looks like, that there is redemption in our chaos. And the birth of Jesus is that reminder for us that God wants to redeem us from the chaos in our lives. Which then leads us to know that God invites us back into that relationship with him through Jesus. You ever watched a, a baby take their first steps? It's kind of funny in some ways, right? Because they, they get up and, and they try to take a step and find their balance and rhythm and and they don't, and what do they do? They fall. And when they fall, what does that mean? It means they fail. But do they just quit after that first time? No, they, they keep at it. They, they keep going. They keep getting up. They keep failing. But they don't stop until they finally are able to take those first steps. 
here at The Journey, we say that our mission is to help people take their next steps towards Jesus. And, and when we talk about that, we want to make sure that, that we're a church that's helping people take their first steps towards Jesus. And we believe one of the first steps that we take is act of baptism. I want to go back to this covenant that God makes with Abraham. Joel didn't go into this part of um, that story, but God comes to Abraham and says, hey, I, I'm all in. And here's how I'm going to show you I, I'm all in, Abraham. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to, to cut an animal in half, and I want you to lay it down, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk through this, right? And so if you know the story, that's what God does. God walks through the middle of, of this split-in-half animal, the sacrificed animal, and, and in doing that, God is saying, look, if I don't fulfill my promise to you, may I be just like this, this animal. And so God's like, I'm all in, Abraham. And then he goes to Abraham, and he's like, Abraham, now I need you to be all in. Here's what I need you to do. I need you to circumcise yourself. I think Abraham got the short straw in this whole thing, right? <laughs> but, but he does it. I don't know how, but he does it. And uh, in, in that moment, Abraham is saying, hey, God, I, I'm all in too. Now, I don't know what you know about the story of Abraham. He says, I'm all in. And yet, if we watch his life, what do we see after that? He still falls and he still fails. But you know what God never did? God never gave up on him. God never told Abraham, you've got to be perfect. You've got to have everything together. You've got to have your life just the way it needs to be under me. And once you do that, then you can take this step. And then, then you'll be ready to go. That's not how this worked at all. God said, hey, Abraham, take this first step with me, and I will be with you moving forward, no matter how many times you fall and fail. I think sometimes when we think about baptism, that's kind of the way we look at it, right? We think to ourselves, I'm supposed to have my life just right. I've got to work on this, and if I get this right, and I'm moving in the right direction, I'm following Jesus like I'm supposed to be following Jesus, then I can take that step. That's not how this work works. God says, no, I'm all in, by the way, through Jesus on the cross. No, no more sacrifice than an animal. God's like, I'm going to sacrifice my son. And he sacrifices his son. It's like, now I need you to be all in too. And he's like, no matter what you do, no matter how many times you fail, how many times you fall, I'm here for you. I need you to take this step in your own life. And so we're invited to take that step of baptism. This, this morning, in our first service, we had two people who were baptized, Melissa and Libby, and we got to experience that. And that was just an amazing, amazing moment to see that. I, both those ladies have been talking about that with some of their leaders here and staff for, for quite a while and took that decision. It was a huge thing. This, this service, here at the end of our service, we got two more baptisms that we're doing. It's two more people like, hey, we're in. We're, we're going to make this happen. And, and maybe there's more of you. Maybe you're here today like, I need to take this step my, myself. When we get done today at communion time, you just walk up here. We'll, we'll baptize you. We'll figure out how to uh, get more towels and keep you nice and dry. You can get baptized in your clothes. If you want to wait afterwards, we've got clothes we'll give you to, to get baptized in. But this is that first step that we take in our spiritual journey. And when we take that step, we're saying, God, I know that you want a relationship with me. And I want that relationship with you. And I'm going to fall and I'm going to fail. But God, I know you're there with me. And so we invite you to take that step. Maybe you've got questions about baptism or want to do it later on. There's a QR code in front of you. Again, you go to our connection card. Let us know. We'd love to have that conversation with you. Because God invites us back into this relationship with him through Jesus. But then there's this other piece to it, that like it or not, we're in this battle together. We go back to Revelation chapter 12, verse 17. 
John says, And the dragon was angry at the woman and declared war against the rest of her children, all who keep God's commandments and maintain their testimony for Jesus. Remember what I just told you? I, I said that as a church, our mission is to help people take their next steps towards Jesus. And one of the things we love to do is help people take their first steps in their spiritual journey. But we also love having people take their 853rd step when it comes to their spiritual journey. None of us are done taking next steps towards Jesus. Until the day we die, we will always be taking those next steps in our spiritual journey. It's why we ask you to jump into groups. It's why we ask you to be a part of the community events that we do to, to give back to this community. It's why we ask you to serve and, and to pray and to read scripture and, and to give. All of these are ways that you and I take next steps in our spiritual journey. But it's not just about me taking a next step in my spiritual journey. It's about me helping others take their next steps in their spiritual journey. Whether it's an, another adult, a teenager, a kid, someone in our community, like as a church, we are called to help people take those next steps together. That's why we believe, as a church, we are better together. When we work together, we make that happen. We're taking next steps in our own life as we're helping others take next steps in theirs. I shared with you a few weeks ago that um, I've seen incredible growth here at The Journey. This morning is another great example of that. And then on April 7th, we are going to three services, and um, 8.30, 10, and 11.30 a.m., and we're inviting you to help others take their next steps while you take your next step. And so as you walk out today, there's a tent outside that says Better Together at it. We've got people that are out there, staff, and some of our key leaders, and they're there to, to answer your questions. We want you to jump in and to be a part of what's happening as we move to three services. In fact, there's a QR code there. We keep talking about that all the time. So much information is there. There's an opportunity for you there to just go on that, and you can sign up there and like, hey, I would love to jump in. I would love to serve. You tell me where to go, or this is what I want to do. And we have people that will contact you this week because we're better together. Again, there's this battle, this, this war that we're all a part of. But sometimes in our sanitized world, we don't think about or see We've been called into it. And through that and through what we do here as a church, we take our next steps as we help others take theirs. And so I'm asking you to jump in and if you're willing to take that next step for yourself. Because we know that there's something much bigger that's going on here than just this church happening on a Sunday. And so jump in and be a part of, of that. Which leads us into our communion time. And before you pop the corks on your packets there, I want you to, I want you to hear me for a second, all right? I'm going to go back to Revelation chapter 12, verse 7. Then there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels. And the dragon lost the battle, and he and his angels were forced out of heaven. Scholars say that as John is writing chapter 12, he is not just talking about the birth of Jesus, that right here he's actually talking about the crucifixion of Jesus, that not only was this dragon, right, Satan trying to get a hold of this child and get rid of this child, but, but this, 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 this dragon, Satan, is trying to get rid of Jesus. I wonder if 
Satan thought when Jesus died he had won. Now think about this. He does not know God's plan. He doesn't know what God's up to. He doesn't know what God is capable of. In Satan's mind, I bet in that moment that Jesus dies, he thinks he has won. What does John say? The dragon lost the battle. How did this happen? What does God do? God jumps in and brings Jesus back to life. And because of that victory, we are reminded that God desires a relationship with us. That because of that victory, we can move beyond our chaos. Because of that victory, you and I, we are redeemed. Because of that victory, we have hope for today, for tomorrow, and for eternity. And so when I, I think about the birth of, of Jesus, when I think about the Christmas story, I know we've kind of turned it into this dream, this fantasy in some ways. But maybe it can be a reminder of the love that God has for you and me and what God's willing to do for us.